All right, well, after a chapter and a half aside, the preacher gets back into it today. He's back on task. But if you're like me, I need a bit of a recap. You know, we did this about a month ago. We did it a couple of weeks. And I think we need to revisit it, especially as we come into some, some difficult territory. So in your minds, go back with me to chapter 3. After some introductions in chapter 1 and 2, where how Jesus is better than the angels, is better than this and that, we start to see how these professing believers, this audience, has come out of Judaism, and they're drifting. They're drifting and developing a hard heart, and if it continues unchecked, God's wrath abides on them, and they will be unable able to enter God's rest. Drifting hearts that must not continue because if it does, they will not be able to enter God's rest. Now, this is not talking about losing salvation, but what it is talking about is that drifting has a destination. As Piper says, election is unconditional, but glorification is conditional. In simple terms, we might say it this way, genuine faith perseveres. The faith that God gives at justification when you, when you repent of your sins and follow Christ, the faith that you're, you're given then is the same faith that will carry you throughout your life. Not perfectly, amen, but progressively. Christians repent. Christians fall down, but Christians get back up. Christians persevere. They do not apostatize. And he uses an Old Testament illustration from Numbers 14. And you remember this. This is where the the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land. This is before hanging out 40 years in the wilderness. They send in 12 spies to come back, Joshua and Caleb, and say, let's do this. But remember, 10 say what? Hey, this is a no-go. For sure, the land does flow with milk and honey, but, you know, those cities are fortified and there's, there's what in the land? There's giants in the land. It's not safe to use a modern day translation. And we as a church made this connection, had this timeless truth as we're learning that we need to avoid having an unbelieving heart. We need to stop the drift. We need to realize that that drifting and hard-heartedness comes about because of fearing God? No, fearing man. And the solution to fearing man is to fear God. The solution to drifting is to draw near. We as a church need to have a healthy fear of the consequences of drifting so that we will hold fast to the Word of God. A healthy fear causes us to hold fast. We talked about that nautical term, you know, with the the tattoos, H-O-L-D, F-A-S-T. Hold fast to your confession. And this brought us to chapter 4. Write down chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. In fact, go ahead and turn there, and we'll kind of ramp up to today's text. So are you with me so far? Professing, formerly Jewish believers, now Christians, 
Not new believers. They've been in the faith for a while. They're drifting. The preacher here is warning them. Drifting has a destination. Have a healthy fear so that you will hold fast. Then in chapter 4, starting in verse 14, we see the warp and the woof of the entire book. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, what? There it is. Hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us, what? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it is this high priesthood, it, it, it is the, 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 the very reason, the foundation for how we as a church can hold fast, can endure during times of persecution. You see, we can't study the book of Hebrews unless we realize this is a real audience, real people, a real church that is about to go through some real difficult times. And they're starting to kind of back up a little bit. I'm not so sure about this whole Christian thing here. I'm hearing from, from, from friends. I'm hearing from other churches that there's some tough times if you're bold in your faith. I can see the storms of persecution on the horizon. I can, I can start to see the waves of the world buffet the church. And the preacher here says, hold fast to your confession because we have a high priest who is interceding for us. We have a high priest who understands. He's experienced everything, and yet he is without sin. Our high priest is very much alive. He is in the throne room of God. Therefore, draw near. Draw near in prayer to the throne of grace. And he starts to expound and explain this high priesthood in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. He quotes two Old Testament texts there. You might write down Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110, which is a very, very important New Testament text. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he, as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We need a healthy fear so that we will hold fast and draw near. And we can do all this because we have a high priest who understands. But then he throws in this according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you're like me, you're like, who? What order? I mean, I think I know Jewish history pretty well. I think I know that um, you had Moses, and you had Aaron, 
And the priesthood was to come from the line of Aaron. They call it the Levitical priesthood because Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, right? So where does this Melchizedek come in? And, and how is it different? And if they're Christians, why are we talking about priesthood stuff at all? And the preacher starts to get into it, starts to unpack it, starts to explain this. And it's heavy. It's going to be heavy. And even though we're reading this, this is a sermon. And it's as if he comes around the side of the pulpit. He's talking about Melchizedek. And your eyes are starting to glaze over. And he says, I got to stop right here for a minute. You guys are sleeping. You're becoming sluggish of hearing. I'm getting into some heavy stuff here. It's very important for those of us who are going to endure persecution and you're not listening. And from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 6, verse 12, he, he does this aside around the pulpit. And he tries to wake them up. He tries to get their attention. He says, hey, hey, verse five, chapter 5, verse 11. I got a lot to say. But it's hard to explain since you've become, what? Dull of hearing. Literally, the Greek is sluggish of hearing. Turn one page ahead and look at chapter 6, verse 12. You remember that? We talked about that top and that tail. He finishes this aside so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, if we can understand this, if I can do a good job of preaching Hebrews like the sermon that is preached here, we'll understand it. If we just parachute in and look at a text and try to unpack it, we're just going to drown. But understanding that he's trying to help this congregation endure persecution by understanding the object of their faith. Let me say that again, because we're, we're going to need this, right? He's trying to help this congregation endure future persecution by understanding better the object of their faith. And the object of their faith is very much alive, is very much interceding, and will carry this church through it. And so when he comes around the side of this pulpit and he says, hey, wake up. You're not listening. I got a lot to say about this, this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, but you're not ready. And it's a, it's a willful not readiness. It's a sticking their fingers in their ears. And you may say, why? In fact, you, you, you may in judgment look and say, why are they doing this? Why are they being this way? Until you understand that this is the temptation for all of us when we see persecution on the horizon. You know, it's like, well, the less I know, the less I'm held accountable, right? I'm not going to spend as much time in my Bible because I don't like feeling convicted. You know, it's, it's the Word of God that makes the people of God. Therefore, if I cannot listen to the Word of God, I don't have to 
act as much like the people of God. It's a silly way of thinking, but we do it, don't we? I'm the only one that does this, right? We, we do. And so we start to withdraw. We start to have spit baths for quiet times, right? Just read a little page of daily bread. Maybe we open it up and read a verse. Maybe we just turn on Christian radio. But we quit diving deep. We become sluggish of hearing. And as a result of being sluggish of hearing, we then, we quit being bold in our evangelism. We quit being disciplined in replicating ourselves. We, we, we quit denying self, picking up our cross and following him. And so before we stand in judgment over these Hebrew Christians, let's realize they're a picture of what everyone is tempted to do when persecution is on the horizon. And the answer is not just a bit of encouragement. Hang in there. You'll be fine. I'm okay. You're okay. No, the answer is you need to understand more about who Jesus Christ is. The answer is Christology, what we were just talking about. And what he introduces here in this, this concept of Jesus as the high priest is the very thing that will help us persevere through persecution. Let me say that one more time. The answer to being able to persevere through persecution is Christology. What you think about God affects everything you do, A.W. Tozer said. The more you understand who Jesus is and what he did, the easier it will be for you to endure the storms of persecution. These people, unfortunately, had become spiritual midgets, sluggish of hearing. And so during this aside where he steps around the pulpit, he gives them an exhortation, he gives them a warning, but then he picks them up and he gives them some encouragement. He says, I don't think I'm talking about you here. I have hope. I've seen the fruit in your lives. In fact, I still see the fruit now. I don't think you're going to drift to the point of apostasy, but you know what? Time will tell. So we might sum this whole aside this way. Seeing the storms of persecution on the horizon, don't be sluggish of hearing because drifting has an eternal destination, but instead imitate the faithfulness and patience of those who have gone before you, of those who have received the promise. And that's where we were last week. The answer for being spiritually hard of hearing is to imitate those who are faithful and patient when given God's promises. And he uses Abraham. Understanding the promises of God will help. Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. You remember that, that picture I gave us? When, when, when Christ ascended into heaven, metaphorically, he, he has this, this chain connected to the boat called the church. And he takes this chain and he swings it around, 
ties it to the throne of God in the throne room of God. And he's there ministering. And the way we hold on is to hold on to that anchor of the soul. That helps me. Because I do not have the fortitude to go through persecution. I don't, I don't like it when people mock me. I don't like it when the world comes against me. And I will tell you, I have not experienced anything in the way of persecution. And I feel my knees buckle. When I read in Acts, and, and, and you see Peter and John being flogged, and then being able to walk away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name, I'm looking at that and going... I can't do that. And you know, I can't do that. And neither can you. But the Holy Spirit can. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit and we trust that Jesus is active and that nothing comes before the church unless it has first passed before the throne of God, then we can do this and we can persevere. And so in today's text, you say, that's a long introduction. I said, I know, but it helps us to get a running start to understand this. The, the preacher steps back behind the pulpit now. And he continues his exposition on Jesus, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Is that helpful? I mean, that's a lot. I still gave you a lot. It's still confusing. But, but kind of getting this running start on this text will help us because i got to tell you, every commentary I read, no one is applying it. And these are brilliant guys, and they're getting it right. But, but I need some application. I need to understand this. Like the original audience, I need to understand how understanding Jesus' perpetual high priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is going to help me be faithful to him in dire times. So he's going to get into this next large section. It's going to run from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. And he's going to explain in detail how Jesus' priesthood, the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, is a better priesthood according to a better covenant. And it is able to save those who draw near because he makes intercession for them. Today, he's going to simply set the stage. Two points. One, Melchizedek, the greater person, and Melchizedek, the greater priesthood. Pray with me and we'll seek to understand this together. Father, thank you that I have a congregation that is so willing to sit through a long introduction like that so that we might be better prepared to feast upon the Word of God. Father, as a body of believers, we do want to understand more deeply Christology, the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how he is the eternal priest king, how he stands daily ministering and praying for his church, and how our confession of who he is and what he has done is an anchor of the soul. It is what holds us fast when the winds and the waves and the squalls of persecution buffet the sides. 
and seek to cause us to drown. And yet we can say with great confidence that we are held on by this anchor. We cannot sink. We are unsinkable because the gates of hell will, prevail, will not prevail against this church. But Christ will build it. And those whom he saves, he sanctifies. And those whom he sanctifies, he glorifies. And we are kept and no one can be snatched out of the palm of his hand. And so it is incumbent upon us as a body of believers to understand our part in this. How we exercise our faith. How we understand the object of our faith. And how we respond in faith when trials hit. Father, I pray that I would be clear these next few moments. I pray that I would not be confusing. Your word is not confusing. May I not muddy the message. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at Melchizedek, the greater person. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, if you'll remember, Melchizedek is mentioned in chapter 14 of Genesis. Lot, Abraham's nephew, has been taken captive. He finds himself behind enemy lines. He is a prisoner of war. Regardless of his disobedience, Abram was committed to pursuing and rescuing his brother. So old man Abram girds his loins, opens up his war chest, pulls out his sword, gathers his 318 SEAL team reconnaissance men. This is long before, you know, Israel had a Mossad team, right? And he takes them on a night raid. He pursues this league of Mesopotamian nations. And in the moonlight, tents and throats were slit. Egyptian iron clashed. There were screams. There was death and there was victory. General Abram won. Victorious, he takes the captives, the wagons, and the booty, while still covered in the blood of his enemies, and he makes the 120-mile trek back to Canaan. He is the most popular man in Canaan now. If there was a Canaan's quarterly, he gets man of the year. Old man Abraham, he's like one of these guys that he looks old from the outside with his, with his white beard. But after this battle, it's ripped and you can see the scars and the blood and the, and the sinews. And this guy is tough because he knows that the Lord is with him. No one, no one at this time is greater than Abraham. No one except King 
Melchizedek. You say, who? I'm like, yeah, me too. Who? As he's marching through the Kidron Valley, and he looks up at what today is the Temple Mount, he sees coming down the king of Salem, King Melchizedek. From out of nowhere, we see a shadowy figure come on to this narrative scene. The only time we see his name is in, is in Genesis 14 in an Old Testament narrative, and then, and then later in Psalm 110. The year is somewhere around 2000 B.C. It's the Middle Bronze Age. The Great Pyramids of Giza have only been around 500 years. And we see Melchizedek come on the scene and disappear just as quickly. His name won't be mentioned for another thousand years when King David reigns in the same city. You see, King of Salem becomes King of Jerusalem. And in Psalm 110, we hear him mentioned again. It would be another thousand years after that that another future king of Jerusalem will mention his name, our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is this man? Who is this shadowy figure, this priest king? Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Ketolemer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. The greatest man in Canaan at the time, the most popular man, the man who did what these kings could not, General Abram, is met by another king, a king of whom we know hardly anything about. And yet our text today gives us some clue. Let's, let's try to paint this picture. It says he was king of righteousness. Melchizedek. MLK means righteousness. There's no vowels in, in Hebrew. And Zedek, ZDK, means righteousness. I'm sorry, MLK means king. ZDK means righteousness. Melchizedek. So he's a king of righteousness. Physically, he's the king of Salem. Salam. Arabic, that means peace. In Hebrew, it's shalom. So he's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And yet here it says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He's both a king and a priest. And I don't think he's supernatural here, but the point is that we know nothing about him. He has no lineage. According to what we understand of a, of a Levitical priesthood, he doesn't come from the right line. He doesn't play by the same rules, and yet he is clearly a priest of God Most High. El Elyon. This is not just like a Canaanite deity. This is talking about God, the God of the Bible. 
And what we start to realize here is that this order of priesthood did not require a bloodline. It did not require a genealogy. It did not have a tenure of 30 years like the Levitical priesthood did. No, the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, was because of a call of God, a direct call of God like the Son of God. Do you catch that? And this Hebrew preacher is making an analogy here that as great as Abraham is, and he was great, he was great not only by, by what he did, but he was even greater because of the promises that had been given to him. He had been promised by God himself land, seed, and blessing, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How, how is it that somehow Melchizedek is greater than even, even Abraham? Well, David tells us a thousand years later in Psalm 110, he talks about him, and he talks, he's actually singing about a future greater Melchizedek, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ even addresses it in Matthew 22. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit of the Lord say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And he goes on to say that he is according to the order of Melchizedek. What we have here basically is as great as Abraham is, Melchizedek is greater. And Melchizedek, watch this, is just a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? We're going to get to it, but let me give you a glimpse. It's important because if you're a Jew in the first century who has bowed the knee to follow Jesus Christ, and now persecution is on the way and you're starting to back up a little bit, where are you going to go? Are you just going to say, I don't believe in God anymore? No, no one does that. Everyone seeks to justify themselves. So they're just going to say, well, I got it wrong. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he was just a good teacher. Maybe he was just a, an elevated angel. Therefore, I'm going to go back to who? To Abraham. I'm going to go back to Judaism. And this Hebrew preacher is saying, hey, Abraham was great. But you missed something in your Old Testament. Melchizedek was even greater. And Melchizedek was just a picture of the greatest. That's the new thing, isn't it? Goat, greatest of all time, right? I get so tired of hearing about who's the greatest of all time. And then the next year, someone else is the greatest of all time. No, no, no. The point of this text, Jesus is the greatest of all time. I mean, literally, that's what screams. Jesus is the greatest of all time. But the way he does it, he says, you think Abraham was great? Abraham was great. Melchizedek, he was greater. King of peace, king of righteousness. Had a priesthood that was not bound by genealogy nor tenure. Why, in the midst of a storm, would you hold on to the life jacket of Judaism, which is about as good as a rotten seat cushion? Hold on to the anchor of your soul. Hold on to the priest king in heaven who is the ultimate king of righteousness. Amen? The ultimate king of kings. The ultimate prince of peace. That's Romans 5, right? 
We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is holding the very anchor of our soul. Oh, Abraham was great. Melchizedek was greater. And Melchizedek was literally just a picture of the greatest. Now watch him take it a step further. Melchizedek, the greater priesthood. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from, descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in the case that one receives them, of whom it is witnessed, that he lives on. And now your head really starts to spin. Okay? Pastor, I'm kind of with you up till now. Now, this is really confusing. Well, the point he's making now is not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, of which Melchizedek is a type of Christ, but guess what? His priesthood is greater. Now, this is, this is going to be essential for a church going through persecution. And I'll explain why. The point he's making here is that not only did Abraham pay tribute, okay, pay tithes and tribute, which indicated Melchizedek was superior, but it also indicated that his priesthood was superior. I mean, think about it. A Levitical priest was a big deal. We get that. But you've never heard of a Levitical priest also being a king. Have you? No, in fact, we have a picture in the Old Testament of one king who tried to act as a priest. King Uzziah, with supposedly the best of intentions, decides to go into the temple and burn incense, which was, which was a priestly function, and God struck him with leprosy, and he had it until he died. No, 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 no. Priests cannot be kings. Kings cannot be priests, except according to the order of Melchizedek. And you say, well, but Abraham's descendants, um, they, they were like Melchizedek. They received tithes. Well, yeah, but that was because of their lineage. That was because of the commandment of the law. Why did Melchizedek receive his tithe? Simply because of who he was. Simply because he was intrinsically valuable and Abraham knew it. Now, think about this. If you're a Jewish Christian and you're about to go back to Judaism and you think Abraham is the best of all, and someone just points out to you, even Abraham realized Melchizedek was better. That's the point. That's what he's doing. Melchizedek's priesthood is better. And as a result, Christ's priesthood is better. Let's put some application to this. Let's bring it, let's land this plane here. We're not a group of first century Jews who are tempted to punt Christ and go back to Judaism. At least I don't see anyone out there. There's no yarmulkes this morning, okay? We don't think about rejecting Christ. At least I hope you don't. But do we functionally do the same thing by neglecting Christ? Meaning that in times of persecution, 
do you revert back to what you consider safe? That's what these Jews are doing. Times of persecution are coming, and so they're going and they're digging out their security blanket. They're like a child holding on to something that neither helps nor saves, right? And we stand in judgment over that. Like, why would you go back to dead, dusty Judaism that doesn't save, that has sacrifices year after year? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. And yet they could look at us and say, you have the entire canon of the word of God. You have more information about Jesus Christ than we ever did. And yet you neglect him. And when you are fearful, when you are nervous, when you worry, you go back and hold on to security blankets that neither save nor help. Now, that's probably different for each one of us, but you know what I mean. Those, those, those things that you think, those, those areas that you think you're controlling rather than getting on your knees and, and crying out to our great priest king who is interceding daily on our behalf, who is holding us firm in the fiercest of storms. The answer to this is understanding Christ. And the preacher knows that. Look, there's a lot of focus today on the humanity of Christ. And that's great because he is 100% human. Glorified human, but he's 100%. He has been tempted in all things as we were and yet without sin. He's, he's felt the pain. He knows what it's like to be weary. But I think we often overlook his divinity. How was this congregation ever remotely comparing the creator with the created. In times of difficulty, are you going to cry out to Abraham? How much good is that going to do? We have a high priest in the throne room who is God of very God, who prays for his church who intercedes for his church, who keeps Satan on a short leash. He is our priest king. We know how it's going to end. We just did this at the Lord's table. He has not only paid it on the cross, it is finished. He is coming back and that is our promise that is absolutely sure beyond the shadow of a doubt. He is priest of God most high, El Elyon, because he is God himself. I got to tell you this week, I saw pastors buckle under the response of this video we saw with Tom Nelson. I mean, there was just scores of kickback, hateful things said, if you looked at the profiles of, of most who were doing it, you would get it. You would understand where they were coming from. You would you understand what they're trying to do. But I, I talked to pastors who, who became nervous and fearful. And, and, and I get it. But if we're buckling under persecution because of 140 characters on a mobile phone, how are we going to endure when real persecution comes? 
And the answer is we're going to endure because we hold fast to our creator, the king of kings, the king of righteousness, the prince of peace, the alpha and the omega, the one who has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Greek and has formed for himself the bride of Christ. And he's coming back for her. That's how we do it. We understand our priest king. We pray that he will see us through. Let's not shame Jesus by placing our affections anywhere else, any other security blanket, any other old thing we used to hold on to, any other created thing, let's not. Let's hold fast to the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, amen. <laughs>